Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Colorado again this week. We are, we are. I know it's been a while since we've released an episode, but it's been a busy time. It's been a busy holiday season. I've been sick, unfortunately. Nicole had family stuff and yeah, lots of fun to be had by all, I guess. The funny thing about my recent sickness, though, is that I avoid everybody right now. Like, I stay in my house. I don't leave. I work from home. I do absolutely fucking nothing because I don't want to get COVID. It doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or not anymore because even people that are vaccinated are getting COVID. They're just getting less symptoms. So my mom was out of town and I went to dinner with my dad to keep him company. And he had been around the relatives Ah. for the holiday. Um, I had not. I did not know that he was sick because he was not experiencing any symptoms yet. But then later on that day, I got a little sick and I was like, God, I hope I'm not coming down with something. This feels like what I had last time. And sure enough, by the next day, I was full blown sick. I still don't feel completely great. And my dad called me a few days later saying, hey, have you been sick? I said, yeah. And then he was like, well, I took a test. It's not COVID. Well. The doctor's office called him yeah, and said that he is positive for COVID. Fun. So he's like, but on the portal, it says no COVID found. Okay. And they're like, well, we don't know why it says that, you, but you totally have COVID. <laughs> so, the test says you don't have COVID, but we know you totally have COVID. <laughs> exactly. So what the fuck? Is, are they like lying to him? Do they have like a quota to fill or does he actually have COVID? No one knows. And if it is COVID and I got COVID... First of all, can't find a test anywhere, so, you know, True. not going to take True. one. And what really good is it going to do at this point? Plus, I you just, stay home like, anyway, right? So you're not going to expose anyone. Exactly. And, um, like, the thing with the whole COVID thing is that means that since it feels exactly like what I had last time where I was sick for, like, a month, that means that this is my second time having COVID if I got COVID. And <laughs> well, my test was negative, too. Weird. I don't know. That could be... Maybe you have a new Eden variant. I don't know. It's possible. I mean, there's so many. I'm I'm waiting for the next one, since this one's called Omicron, to be called like Percy Eye. <laughs> so we got a little Futurama going on. Nice, nice. Well, you don't sound too bad, which is good. And I'm glad you're starting to feel a little bit better. Yeah, I'm starting to feel a little better. Well, hopefully I can lift your spirits with some of the weird laws I found. And also I feel like my story is going to entertain you yet also make you kind of mad. That's my favorite kind of entertainment. <laughs> I love double-edged swords. Let the double-edged sword fest begin. <laughs> and I don't know if you experienced this, Eden, but I've found that as I have explored Colorado, that it tends to be a bit of a, you know, whimsical kind of weird place. Like people there definitely have a sense of humor. And mm. I feel like it definitely has that Western frontier sensibility of just kind of relaxed, but like they welcome uniqueness. If that makes sense. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. Uh, I feel like it's very much reflected in some of their weirder laws. And it's interesting because a lot of the weird laws aren't like statewide. They're like very localized, which makes sense because I feel like Colorado's are very, you know, they value independence in the state. So lots of the cities and towns and municipalities have created their own laws to reflect the community and the needs of the community. Like, for example, in Denver, where apparently there is some illegal vacuum cleaner swapping between neighbors. 
What? Yes. So much so that in Denver, it's illegal to actually lend your vacuum cleaner to your next door neighbor. But if it's your neighbor, you know, a block or two away, you're fine. Well, that sucks. Pun completely intended. And <laughs> um, yeah, that's really freaking bizarre. Okay. Another very bizarre rule is from the Colorado town of Alamosa, where it's illegal to throw missiles at cars, which I guess is great. Like, don't That's... throw missiles at cars. Who is who is that law for? <laughs> for for missile t- missileteers? Is that the word for missile? What? Maybe missile? I don't I don't know. I don't throw missiles at cars. I'm not that kind of person. If you want to live your life that way, fine, but just don't drag me into it. Uh, the law that made me chuckle aloud was a law I found in Boulder, where it is illegal in Boulder to roll boulders on city property. Well, then the title of your entire city is misleading. No bouldering in Boulder. That's what that, that's what that says to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And I think we might have found an episode title. <laughs> I did find a law also that made me giggle a little bit when I thought about the wider implications. There's a law in Pueblo, Colorado that says that you cannot grow a dandelion within the city limits. I'm assuming it's for weed. Yeah. For weed control, which I think is hilarious in a state where weed's actually legal, except for dandelions. They're not legal. (laughs) Peplo. Well, I guess that's true. Did I ever tell you that story about my friend? We were in high school and just walking around town and she found this giant weed growing somewhere and she thought it looked cool. So she plucked it out of the ground and took it with her. And then she dropped it while we were walking and said, oh, shit, I dropped my weed as a cop car was driving by. (laughs) Did the car stop? No, thank God. (laughs) That's funny. Um, Some other weird things speaking, and this kind of fits into, I guess there's like a projectile issue in Colorado because the city of Aspen has a law in the books where it is illegal to fire catapults at buildings. Oh, okay, because, you know, I leave my catapult, you know, I don't leave the house without it. Oh, I know how much you love siege warfare, Eden, so of course. Exactly. Catapults, (laughs) trebuchets, all of them. All of them. This law, I don't quite understand it, uh, exactly how this would be accomplished. So maybe you can help me with this one, Eden. But it's illegal to mutilate a rock in a state park in Colorado. How does one mutilate a rock? Exactly. Like, I get, do you I just take that. a knife and start carving? Mutilate a rock. Yes, mutilate a rock. You sure it didn't say the rock? Because <laughs> Dwayne might. Dwayne yeah. the Rock Johnson. <laughs> I get, it's so funny because I'm like, mutilate. That's a very odd, specific choice. Yeah, of words. that's yeah. a weird choice of words. And last but certainly not least is a law that comes from Louisville or Louisville, Colorado. Residents there may not own chickens, but they can own up their three turkeys. They're a turkey town, gosh darn it. What's, I mean, I know that it's a different animal, but really what's the difference? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I guess because turkeys are more delicious, maybe? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't even know that that's necessarily true, but <laughs> I don't know. Gobble, gobble, motherfucker. <laughs> Turkey town. <laughs> um, so that's it for the weird laws. I thought they were a pretty good sampling of like, what there, the hell, Colorado? <laughs> yeah, Colorado. You're 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 starting to you know pull up ahead there in weird laws because we haven't had like really weird ones in a while. So mm-hmm. good job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So I can uh, jump into my true crime story, which kind of keeps the weirdness rolling along quite nicely, if I do say so myself. Or we could jump into some other weirdness. Oh, what's other weirdness? The thing that I just found out about called Turkish oil wrestling. (gasps) I do want to know more about Turkish oil wrestling. So it's apparently a sport in Turkey. And um, I, I don't mean to make fun of Turkey's beloved pastime, but it's super gay. It's okay. So you lather each other's half naked bodies in oil before you wrestle around. And the thing you have to do is put your hand down the other person's pants. Doesn't matter if it's the front, the back, the what, but I don't know if there's something inside that you got to grab or what's going on, but you put your hand down the other person's pants and then you pin them. What? So not only do you pin like shoulders or whatever, but you also have to have your hand down the other guy's trousers to down their special pants that they wear for this yes special pants so okay so you're telling me that it's half naked greased up men wearing special Mm -hmm. outfits wrestling putting their hands on each other's pants and then pinning each other to mats and it's not like you even grease yourself up you grease each other up so it's like a little foreplay before the main event like i i don't get it turkey if you listen and you're from turkey explain turkish oil wrestling to me because wow I mean, maybe Turkish men are just, like, really comfortable with their sexuality. Could be, and good on them if that's the case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I know they love bathhouses, too, so. I just saw it, and I was like, is this porn? I don't think I should be watching this right now. I think it's porn. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's safe for work porn. It's fine. You can watch yeah. Turkish oil wrestling. <laughs> 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 well, that was certainly weird, Eden. Um, yeah, yeah. I Yeah, wow. Any wow. Turkish oil wrestling in your story? No, no, no Turkish oil wrestling. Um, no wrestling of any kind, unfortunately. But Aww. there is a little bit of a weirdness and some whimsy. Well, let's hear it. All right. Well, my, for my story today, we are back in Denver, which is the capital and most populous city in Colorado. Since I gave a basic rundown of the Mile High City in my previous story for Colorado, this time I figured I'd explore its whimsical and weird side, because Colorado's weird. We just learned that. (laughs) Yes, yes, we did. First, let's embrace the whimsy of the Yearling Statue, which is located outside the Denver Public Library. Created by Donald Lipsky, the piece attempts to replicate a child's sense of scale and wonder by featuring an enormous red chair with a pinto pony sitting atop its seat almost like some kind of giant toddler has just stepped away for a moment now this big red chair is fabricated from steel it's about 21 feet tall and 10 feet wide the pony that sits on top of it is six feet tall from ears to hooves he's made out of painted fiberglass and he's been nicknamed scout all righty okay (laughs) It turns out that Denverites love big whimsical art pieces and little whimsical art pieces as well. So back in the 1970s, when the Denver Museum of Nature and Science needed new backdrops for their wildlife dioramas, they hired artist Kent Pendleton to paint the backdrops for many of the current wildlife dioramas. What the museum didn't know was that Pendleton had a penchant for hiding tiny mythical creatures in his work. And his wildlife diorama backdrops will be no exception. So he hid eight tiny little elves in the backdrops. All right. Before long, museum visitors noticed and they loved it. 
So much so that the staff at the museum kind of ran with it. And over the years, they've added more and more tiny little creatures to the museum's exhibits, including a ceramic elf in the Candor Chasm of Mars exhibit, a digital elf concealed in a cluster of stars in the museum's entrance video. And it's not just elves either. Staffers have added little gnomes, unicorns, angels. You can even find some homage to Star Wars fans with a tiny little Millennium Falcon and a tiny Yoda in the museum displays. Oh my God. Okay. Well, they really went all out. I kind of like it though. (laughs) It is. It's great. I encourage you to Google pictures of the Denver Museum of Natural Science Mythic Creatures because they're pretty adorable. Now, where Denver's whimsicalness takes a weird turn is at the Denver International Airport. I know I've talked about how terrifying it is to fly in and out of this airport, but that's not the only reason to be terrified, Eden. First, there's the blue stallion sculpture that greets you in front of the airport. Standing 32 feet tall and molded from fiberglass, the rearing Mustang is painted a vibrant blue color, and it has glowing red neon eyes. Now, according to its creator, Luis Jimenez, the blue stallion is meant to represent the wild spirit of old America. Naturally, people who've seen the artwork are pretty divided over this giant bright blue horse with hellish red eyes. That That's appeared- a demon. Yes. It appeared in front of the airport in 1995. People are like, who commissioned the giant demon horse? I literally just looked it up and it's a demon <laughs> horse from hell. It's really creepy, but kind of cool at the same time. Exactly. And it's no surprise now that you've seen the picture why locals call it Blucifer. Blucifer. I like it. <laughs> and just so you know, when you said blue stallion at first, I thought you said blue scallion. And I was like, what? Okay. It's a giant blue onion. No, blue stallion. <laughs> then you said Mustang. And I was like, all right. Okay. <laughs> So, Blucifer is, according to some locals, actually cursed. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, right. It's it's a spooky-ass sculpture, and it's, it, blames, it gets blamed for lots of things. However, there is a not-so-fun fact about Blucifer, and that is, Blucifer killed its creator, Luis Jimenez. You see, during construction, one of the parts of the sculpture broke loose and severed an artery in Jimenez's leg, and it caused him to bleed to death. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's very sad and tragic. However, his sons were able to finish the sculpture and install it at Denver International Airport as it'll, at, to honor their father's memory. Will Blucifer ever pay for his crimes? <laughs> Never. Oh, damn that horse. Oh, and it's not just Blucifer when it comes to creepy artwork at Denver's airport. There's a series of murals within the airport called Children of the World Dream of Peace. And the story is kind of this weird depiction about world peace that borders on ominous. I have seen these murals in real life, and they're one of those things where you kind of look at them at first and you're like, oh, pretty mural. And then the more you look at it, the more you're like, this is disturbing. The reason they're so disturbing is that parts of the mural feature soldiers wearing gas masks with like stern figures that kind of resemble Nazi uniforms or at least fascist uniforms. There's children from all around the world in every race creating color that seem to be giving up their weapons in almost this vi- in front of this vivid reenactment of like a solar flare on canvas. And then on the other side of it has a peaceful revolution with everybody living happily ever after on one of the other sides of the murals. Um, 
if you have a moment, I would suggest Googling the Children of the World Dream Peace mural and taking a look for yourself. And I guarantee you, the more you look at it, the more you'll find there's creepy, weird images. <laughs> it It is a little weird. Um, the oh. gas mask soldier is the one that oh, I saw, and that's what yeah. made me stop going, what the hell? I just, that's why I just said, oh, I just noticed it right then. And I thought it was rocks before. It's not rocks. Um, yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's weird. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is, is that? Oh, it's, it's that person's shirt. Okay. Um, wow. and it's kind of almost looks like a, like an explosion, right? Like, yes. Mm-hmm. With rainbows. Yep. Yep. The rainbow explosion. And I guess you and I aren't the only people who find that mural kind of weird and creepy. Um, there's a number of conspiracy theories about the Denver airport. <laughs> and they're kind of delightful. There's rumors that the Denver airport is the home of the local Freemasons or the Illuminati group for Denver. I could it's, see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's said that you can find clues to the upcoming apocalypse in the airport murals, which I mean, hello, oh, hello. Uh, there's also a conspiracy theory that there's a colony of lizard people living in tunnels under the airport. Oh, Jesus. The lizard people again. They're back. Remember, Justin Bieber is a lizard person. Remember our episode on uh, conspiracy theories. Well, see, but here's the thing. Apparently, they live in tunnels under the airport, so. Oh, my God. <laughs> Justin, get out of those tunnels. All of this is delightfully weird, and I think it really fits in with the adventurous, whimsical Denverite spirit. So it wasn't a surprise to me when I came across a bizarre true crime story about a rumored haunted house whose last owner was found murdered inside with the house locked up tight. Oh, okay. This is the story of the Denver Spider-Man. Oh, Peter Parker, what have you done this time? <laughs> and he is not your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, let me tell you. Apparently yes, not. All right, so let's head to the north side of Denver to the West Highland neighborhood. There in 1899, Philip Peters, a Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad employee, purchased a Victorian bungalow on West Moncrief Place to share with his new bride, Helen. The young couple were very happy together, and they were passionate about music, and they soon joined the Denver Guitar Club. They also taught guitar and mandolin lessons to their friends and neighbors, sharing their music with West Minecraft Place for years. The Peters would go on to have and raise their children in their Victorian bungalow, spending the next 40 years there. In fall of 1941, Helen fell and broke her hip. She had to be hospitalized to recover. Their neighbors wanted to help out and make sure that Philip had a hot meal every night, so they invited him over for dinner, each family on the block taking turns hosting Philip. On October 17, 1941, a neighbor stopped by the bungalow to check on Philip since he didn't show up for dinner at her house. Her knocks went unanswered, so she went around and peered in the kitchen window. She made a terrible discovery. 73-year-old Philip Peters was lying in a pool of blood on the kitchen floor. Oh, God. Where's J. Jonah Jameson when you need him to track down Spider-Man? Because, yeah. <laughs> now, when police arrived... They discovered that Peters had been bludgeoned to death with several objects, including his own cane and an iron stove shaker near several several objects. Yes. So they found his own cane, which was covered in his blood. Uh, they found parts of what looked to be an old pistol 
broken apart near the body, also covered in blood. And then they found an iron stove shaker that was clearly just rinsed off of blood and washed up sitting on the, the sitting near the body in the kitchen. Okay, this seems like an open and shut case to me. Yeah. Because you said the house is completely locked up. Yep, the house is completely locked up. So, I mean, I'm 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 not trying to jump to conclusions, but it totally seems like if the only other person living in that house was the wife, that it would be the wife. But the wife was in the hospital with her broken hip, remember? Well, oh, yeah. Shit. Okay, then never mind. And that was pretty much what the police were like. The police were pretty stumped. They searched the entire house. They did not find anyone else hiding anywhere in the house. All of the doors and windows were locked. Even more strange was that there didn't seem to be a very clear motive. Uh, the Peters had valuables and cash in the house. They were untouched. So okay. clearly the motivation wasn't robbery. Yeah, not robbery gone wrong. And they couldn't really figure out how a killer would enter and leave the empty locked up house. Someone else had to have a key to this house. Possibly. And on that hunch, investigators did start to dig into the Peters' lives a little bit more. And, and there's enough people in town that they've been having dinner with that it could easily be, you know, hey, here's a key to my house just in case you want to come and check up on me, you know? so Exactly. They're el- they're both elderly at this point, so it would make sense that neighbors would probably have, a- have keys and they've been neighbors for-, for ages, so. But here's the weird thing, Eden, is when investigators talk to Peter's neighbors and friends and family, he was pretty much well-liked all around and they didn't turn up any sort of uh, enemies, no gambling debts, nothing nefarious. He didn't owe anybody money. He, they just couldn't figure out why someone would kill him. Yeah. I mean, who wants to hurt old people? Like, you know, it just, it surprises me. Like the one story that I did, the cold case mm-hmm. with like the 80 some year old woman or 90 some year old woman. The mo- mo- in Montana who was like found yeah. in her bed. Yeah. 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 It's kind of, kind of shocking. So the police are kind of left with, no leads. After a few weeks, the investigation grows cold, and poor Helen Peters returns to the bungalow on West Minecraft Place, sadly now a widow. She still wasn't completely recovered from her hip injury, so a friend moves in with her to act as her nurse. Over the next couple of months, both Mrs. Peters and her friend report that there's something strange going on in the bungalow. Food would go missing. Items would mysteriously move around on their own or be slightly out of place from where the women would le- had previously left them. And they would hear strange noises at night. One night, her friend heard a noise in the kitchen and saw the light flicker on. When she went to investigate, she saw what she later described as a gaunt, filthy ghoul gnashing its teeth at her before disappearing into the darkness. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'm supposed to be doing the, the haunting one this week. <laughs> I know, but like, how fucking terrifying is that? You're like, oh, the lights on the kitchen. Let me go check on it. And like, you walk in, there's just this like terrifying figure who's just like at you and then disappears. This freaked out her friends so bad that the friend convinces Mrs. Peters that the house is haunted, that they need to leave. And Mrs. Peters, who can't be in the house without her friend's help, decides to move in with her son in Grand Junction, Colorado. I've seen too many horror movies like this. The answer is there's someone living in their walls. Dun, dun, dun. So the house sits vacant for months after this. The neighbors start to report odd smells and noises coming from the house. They call the police 
repeatedly saying that they see lights flickering off and on, that they think they see faces in the windows of the abandoned bungalow. Eventually, the police, who are still looking for suspects in the murder of Philip Peterson, and getting all of these calls about suspected squatters at the Peterson's house, decide to station a patrol car outside the bungalow at night. I would do the same thing. Exactly. Uh, They stake it out for several weeks. And then finally, the stakeout pays off on July 30th, 1942, more than nine months after Philip Peterson was murdered. The two police officers stationed across the street from the Peters' house spot a pale, ghoulish face in one of the windows. Rushing over to the house, they break in the door, and from above them, they hear sounds, and they dash up the stairs. As they rush into one of the bedrooms, they see through an open closet door a pair of bare, pale feet dangling from a hole in the ceiling. They grab the feet and pull eventually capturing an emaciated scarecrow of a man. Oh, God, someone was fucking living in their walls, weren't they? (laughs) Yes, yes. They discover that in the ceiling of the closet, it leads to a small storage attic. The entrance was pretty small, about three times the size of a cigar box lid. So only the smallest of officers could fit up there. When the smallest officer finally does manage to get himself up through the hole... He finds a room in the attic that's only a few feet larger than a coffin. There's a small incandescent light bulb that's hanging from a wire in the rafters, and it has this overpowering stench of just body and human excrement in the air. Gross. You certainly know how to paint a very visceral image. I can see it. I can smell it. I can even (laughs) kind of taste it because it smells that bad. Good. Good. I'm glad. I'm not. I love to paint pictures with my words, Eden. (laughs) (laughs) The officer notices that there is a bed made out of an old ironing board, a bunch of like old magazines and newspaper kind of littered around amongst the bedding. And there's a ton of spider webs in the corners of the attic. Uh, He can't handle the smell and promptly drops out of the attic, vomits because it's that nasty, and then proclaims, quote, A man would have to be a spider to stay up there that long. And that's how the name came about. Yes. I was also going to say when you said you painted, you know, uh, such a, you know, great image. I was going to say, why couldn't you have painted one with horses instead? But then I remembered that you already did in your intro and it was also creepy. So I just, (laughs) no, no. Mm. You're welcome. Um, Yes, that is that it is from that quote from the investigating police officer that when the press hears about the story, they dub the man that they found the Denver Spider-Man. Okay, makes sense. So the man they took into custody was pretty frail. He was about 5'10 and between 120 and 130 pounds. So he's very emaciated for his frame. Uh, The police take him into the station. They give him a hot meal. And as he scarfs down the food, he begins to tell his story. His name is Theodore Edward Conies, and he was born in Illinois in 1882. Conies was a frail and sickly child who, according to his doctors, wouldn't live to see 18 years old. His father died when he was an infant, and his mother was extremely protective of her son. She wouldn't allow him to play sports or attend high school due to his frail health. And the one thing that young Conies was allowed to do was take mandolin lessons, and soon the young man became an expert player. In the early 1910s, the Conies 
moved to Denver. Cody's told police that he was actually an old friend of Philip Peters. The two had been members of the Denver Guitar Club, and Coney's had visited the Peters bungalow on a number of occasions to get together and play mandolin music. Okay, so I can't smell much over the stench coming from the attic, but I do smell bullshit here. <laughs> this is actually very true. So what? there Yes. So in 1912, the Denver Guitar Club, uh, there's uh, like a club picture, and you can actually see Coney's in the club picture. He's a pretty young man, like I guess like in his 30s at that point, and he looks very frail and very, very pasty. But yes, hmm. he was friends with the Peters. Now, unfortunately for Coney's, his really poor health and lack of an education really made it difficult for him to succeed in adulthood. After his mother passed away, he really struggled to keep a job. During the Great Depression, Coney's left Denver to seek his fortune elsewhere around the country. He eventually ended up living the hobo life, riding rail cars, taking odd jobs, uh, in the late 1930s, he did manage to make somewhat of a comeback as a salesman in New York City. However, that soon fell through for him as well due to his health condition. And in 1941, he found himself back in Denver. As a harsh fall started in Denver, Coney's knew his frail health wouldn't allow him to survive another harsh Denver winter. So he went to visit his old friend Peters, hoping for a place to stay or even a little cash so he could rent a room. When he arrived at the bungalow on West Mycreef Place, no one was home. So, Gonies does the natural thing and decides to break in through an open window. <laughs> he helps himself to some food from the kitchen and starts to explore the house. In an upstairs bedroom, Gonies discovers a small cozy storage attic in the closet. He decides to crawl into the attic and sleep for a while since he was absolutely exhausted. So he just snuck in their house? Yep. Yep, they weren't oh there. God. He snuck in the house. He was hungry and tired because he's homeless, basically. And he takes some food, eats it, and then goes upstairs, presumably looking for a place to sleep. And instead, he finds a, an attic crawl space where he crawls up there because it felt very cozy to him. Uh, according to his confession, Coney's wasn't sure how long he slept in the attic. But when he awoke, he crept back down to the kitchen for more food. And that's when Philip Peters found him. Oh, so he hadn't been up there long then. Probably not so long, but like he was sick and like the way some of the, the, the versions of his account that I read, it was very difficult to find kind of similarities. Some of them said like he slept for, he doesn't know how long, so he could have been asleep for like you know, 18 hours, 16 hours, a couple days. Who knows? Okay. Um, But he creeps back downstairs when he wakes up and that's when he is discovered by Philip Peters. Now, Coney's is so sickly looking and it's been about 30 years since Peters has seen his old friend that he doesn't recognize him and thinks he's it's he's a burglar. So he attacks him with his cane. Coney's manages to wrestle the cane away and beats Peters to the ground. Then in what he describes as a split second decision, Coney's grabs the iron stove shaker and beats his friend to death. Oh my God. Okay. That there would have been a much better way to solve this. Yes. Yes. There would have. Coney then cleans the stove shaker, grabs some food and returns to the attic. And that's where Coney's remains. When the police searched the house after the discovery of Peter's body, Coney's 
sits on top of the attic hatch to secure it so the police can't find him. That was smart, I guess. Yeah. Coney's remained in the attic when Mrs. Peters and her nurse returned home. He continued to sneak down and grab food at night. Even after Mrs. Peters left the house vacant, Coney's remained, scavenging what food was left and was the source of all the unexplained sounds, smells, and lights turning off and on that neighbors reported. Gross. Yep. Now, police obviously had enough to arrest Coney's, which they did. He was charged and convicted of murder and given a life sentence in October of 1942. He was sent to the state penitentiary in Canyon City and remained there until his death on May 16th, 1967 at age 84. Pretty good run for a dude who wasn't supposed to make it to his 18th birthday. Yeah, right. Uh, this story reminded me a lot of the Hinterkaifeck murders, just the idea of someone kind of living in a house unbeknownst to the occupants and then murdering them. Um, but the Denver Spider-Man actually did inspire at least two television episodes, if this story also sounds familiar to you, Eden. I've, like I said, I saw quite a few horror movies where that was the premise, and I've seen mm-hmm. TV shows where it's the premise, too. So, Yeah. I know the two that like have been clearly tied to the Denver Spider-Man are an episode of CSI crime scene investigation called Stalker and an episode of The Simpsons called The Ziff Who Came to Dinner. I don't know that one. Yeah, I I didn't recall off the top of my head, but then reading it, it kind of it kind of sounded familiar. It's about one of their friends who comes to dinner and then loses his job and hides in the Simpsons attic. That <laughs> uh, actually sounds a little bit more familiar now. I just um, yeah. immediately thought about uh, the Treehouse of Horrors episode where Bart had a, a twin that had been locked up in the attic the whole time. Oh. <laughs> yeah, slightly different episode. But yeah, so that is the story of the Denver Spider-Man. What do you think? That was crazy. Um, Like I said, kind of called it, but also kind of not really. Like, I didn't know who this man was. And the fact mm-hmm. that he knew them before, uh, that I definitely did not call yeah. at all. Yeah, that's super chilling to me. I'm like, okay. I need to go check my attic now. Um, <laughs> I know. I'm like, sorry to ruin your, your your day by having you check your attic every day before you fall asleep, but you're welcome. I will say this is particularly like spooky to me because in the house that I grew up in, there was like the main attic. And then in one of the bedrooms, there actually was a similar sort of little storage crawl space. And uh, when I was a teenager, it was the bedroom that I was in. And like, I hated, hated having my closet oh, door no. open at night. Mm-mm. I'm like, Mm-mm. yeah, there were little crawl spaces in, I think two or three of the closets in my childhood home and one of them was in my closet in my bedroom and I did not like it at all I didn't like that closet like there was something nasty in there but yeah, yeah. the whole closet had problems and it had yes, a crawl space yeah. on top of it which makes it 10 times worse well thank you so much for that story Nicole I liked it it was creepy and holy shit what the fuck <laughs> you're welcome, you're welcome. <laughs> So I guess we'll take a short break and then we'll be back with some weird news and your paranormal story. I hope it's not a haunted house. (laughs) It it is not a haunted house. (laughs) All right, cool. All right, we'll be back. And we're back. And I have a weird ass news story from, it looks like it says blog2.com. Never heard of it. 
but we're going to go with it because it's fucking weird. Alrighty, lay it on me. All right, the headline is $200,000 worth of butter stolen in Bizarre Ontario Transport Truck Heist. That's a lot of butter. That's like a, that's a, wow. Okay, tell me more. Why and would someone I'm need that much of, butter? <laughs> yeah, unless they're going to like roll around. And I, I don't know. Or maybe butter they're wrestling. sculpting. Oh my God, they're going to hold the butter sculpting world hostage. Exactly. It's like that movie with Jennifer Garner. So the article goes on to say, Police are searching for at least four suspects who are thought to have stolen two full truckloads of butter, as in the stuff you put on toast, from a facility in Trenton, Ontario, over the weekend. And we're not talking normal delivery trucks here, but massive transport trucks with trailers big enough to carry between some 400,000 kilograms of butter between them. Wow. All in all... Police say the stolen product had a street value, sorry, retail value, of roughly $200,000. That's a lot of corn lubricant. Uh, let's see what else it says. On December 26, 2021, at approximately 9.45 a.m., uh, Quinte West OPP, I'm down with OPP, um, <laughs> responded to a trucking facility on Glen Miller Road in Trenton after a report of two transport trucks being stolen. Reads a release issued by Ontario Provincial Police. Oh, that's what OPP stands for. Okay, not what I thought. <laughs> not other people's you-know-what. Um, on Wednesday. Investigation determined that at approximately 11 p.m. on December 25th, 2021, four suspects broke into the facility after being dropped off near the location by someone driving a black sport utility vehicle. Police say that after entering the trucking facility, the suspects stole two transport trucks right away. They then used the trucks to steal two trailers filled with 200,000 kilos of butter each. Mm. Now, lest you think that the crooks were after the trucks, which are likely worth even more than the butter they were hauling, it appears as though they really did want that butter. <laughs> According to the police, both of the transport trucks and their trailers were located on the west end of Toronto on December 27th, one at Atwell Drive and one in McCulloch Avenue, both with their contents completely emptied. Mm -hmm. And then this other news article's title was Saute Away, Major Based in the Butter Belt on Boxing Day, OPP, Hoping to Churn Up Tips. Oh my wow. gosh, that's so yep. funny, I can't even. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on there. What authorities now want to know is who took the butter and where it went. The rest of us would probably be content simply to find out why these folks stole so much of the dairy product. Late season holiday baking? CNE sculpture practice? Vegan protest prank? <laughs> if you happen to spot a huge quantity of butter for sale on Craigslist in the near future, you might want to ask about the source. Anyone with information regarding this incident is requested to contact the Ontario Provincial Police at one 888 3101122 or crime stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. You know, with the supply chain mess being what it is, I wonder if there's going to be a butter shortage in Ontario now. Probably, but you know, <laughs> I was very scared at the parallels here because um I rewatched Supernatural recently and there's an episode where they go to the future where the Croatoan virus had, you know, destroyed everything mm -hmm. and chuck says in one point i'm gonna tell you a little tip 
hoard toilet paper. Start hoarding it now. <laughs> and I'm like, what? What? That happened. That happened last year. What? What's going on? It was really fucking scary how accurate it was. But no hoarding of butter. No hoarding of butter as of yet. Yeah, I think butter's probably pretty hard to hoard unless you have like a ginormous freezer. Well, the most recent thing to go like completely and disappear has been Lunchables and cream cheese. I have heard about cream cheese, but you know what? There's lots of, you know, Neufchatel out there if you still need something that's cream cheese adjacent. And the funny thing about the Lunchables is Giant just got them back in when I went last time. But the stickers are still there that say temporarily out of stock. So I'm like, I'm confused, but I see them right here. <laughs> All right. So that was my news story, y'all. I liked what it. I think? I liked it. Uh, who knew? That butter pun. I, I, wow. They outdid themselves who wrote that headline. Exactly. It was better than the rest. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> oh, that one was bad. Okay. <gasps> to avoid embarrassing myself further, I think I'm going to tell my story. Okay. So, my story for this week takes place in Estes Park, Colorado. Estes Park is home to 5,904 people, making it on the smaller side population-wise. It sits on the northern part of the state and has an area of 6.897 square miles. Again, like last week, this is another statutory town, which sits in Larimer County. It's also the headquarters of the Rocky Mountains National Park which is one of the big tourist attractions in the area. In fact, it's such a tourist attraction that when I tried to find things to do in Estes Park, everything kept leading me back to it. Now, there is one other major attraction in this area that people come from all over to see. The best part about this attraction is that you can also stay there while on vacation. It's the subject of today's story. That's right. The inspiration for Stephen King's The Shining the Stanley Hotel. Yay! I'm glad you covered the Stanley Hotel. I am too, because it turned out to be pretty damn good if I do say so myself. And I don't know too much about it other than the fact that it's where The Shining was filmed, right? Yeah, well, apparently the internet didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> I I had no problem finding history, uh-huh. but then the hauntings I had a little trouble with, but I think I got some good ones. Okay. So before I get too into the hotel, I want to talk about the history of the land and how this place came to be. Before the hotel, there was a man named Wyndham Thomas Wyndham Quinn. No, I did not stutter. Wyndham Thomas Wyndham Quinn? Yep. One of those Wyndhams is spelled with an I and the other with a Y. Oh, that clears it up. Yes. So he was the fourth Earl of Dunraven. So he was a rich aristocratic man from Ireland. He wanted this land to create a giant place to hunt and have fun with all of his rich friends. There was this act called the Homestead Act of 1862, which let American citizens claim 160 acres of land that had been opened for settlement, and he saw this as his ticket in. However, you see the problem there, right? Yeah. He's not American. He's He's British. Or Irish, rather. Irish, yep. But, yep, he's not American. But he found an interesting workaround. He decided to get some men of rather poor reputation from Denver to claim the land. And once it was theirs, all the acts said they had to do was improve upon it. But there wasn't anything that clearly stated what that had to look like. So these guys basically put down four logs, called it a house, and sold the land to Wyndham for a nice price. 
<laughs> he did this 31 times, which means he now owned nearly 5,000 acres of land in Estes Park. But the video I saw said it was more like 6,000, which doesn't add up with the math, but oh well. We'll go with them. They know what they're talking about. So with this land, he did end up building a hotel, which was called Estes Park Hotel, because I guess he wasn't terribly clever or inventive. (laughs) This was in 1878. People also called it the English Hotel, which made no sense since he was Irish, but maybe people didn't know the difference. You don't know how many times I've run into people who think Wales is part of England, so... (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, this hotel burnt down in 1911 and they never even bothered to rebuild it. They're like, whatevs. Let's try again. Yeah. Fresh. They're just like, oh, well, we can still hunt here. It's fine. So now we come to a man named Freeland Oscar Stanley or F.O. Stanley, as he is more commonly known. Have you ever heard of him, Nicole? No, I don't think I have. Okay. I didn't either, uh, but he's actually kind of really cool. He was from Maine, and in fact, there were a lot of Stanleys in Maine at the time. F.O. Stanley and his brother Francis were both inventors and entrepreneurs. They had made a they had made these buckets for the maple syrup companies, and actually and supposedly got started by whittling tops with a pocket knife their dad had given them and selling them. Stanley also invented a steam-powered car called the Stanley Steamer, which just gets that jingle from the carpet cleaning commercial stuck in my head. I was going to say, I've heard of the Stanley Steamer car, but I also hear the jingle in my head, too. (laughs) Exactly. I'm not sure if that's a local commercial or a national one, so I don't know if the rest of the listeners will know what it is, but yeah, I don't think the two are related as far as I could find. He invented a ton more things, including this dry plate photography process, which he then sold to Kodak for $500,000 at the time. Oh, wow. And this was the early 1900s, so that would make it more like $14 million or more today. Anyway, Stanley moved to Colorado because of his doctor. When he was around the age of 50, he contracted tuberculosis, and the treatment at the time was fresh air, and since Colorado had wide-open spaces, in the words of the Dixie Chicks, <laughs> it seemed like a safe bet. I guess we're calling the Dixie Chicks just the Chicks now, from what I heard, but that just sounds so weird. Although, my favorite name change has to come from Lady Antebellum. Do you know that one? Oh, Lady A. Yeah. So, do you know what they like? They did with that? They were just like, Black Lives Matter, so now we change our name to Lady A. But the thing that's crazy about it is there was already an African-American singer by the name of Lady A. So what do they do? The most counterproductive thing in the world and sue her for the rights to use that name. Wow. Talk about supporting the black community. Exactly. So you know what, Lady A? It's a quarter after one. You're a little drunk and you need to sit down and shut the fuck up. (laughs) Anyway, back to our regularly scheduled program. Stanley, with all that money, goes and buys this land from Wyndham and wants to build an even bigger, grander hotel than before even though he knew nothing about the hotel industry at all. He initially was going to preserve the Earl's memory and name this beautiful Georgian colonial revival-style hotel Dunraven. But the people in town had a different thought on the subject. They didn't really care for Wyndham very much, since he just wanted to turn the town into a private playground for himself and his rich buddies. 
So the people of the town were the ones who decided to call it the Stanley Hotel, since everyone actually liked this dude. (laughs) He was said to be smart, nice, pretty much anything good. He built a complex of 11 buildings for this hotel in 1907 and opened it two years later. To power the hotel, he also built a power plant and a water plant in town. This was all wonderful, and it got the small town of Estes Park, um, you know, up and moving. It gave people jobs. It brought in tourism. It really just did a lot for the small community in a way I don't think a lot of people were expecting, since the last guy was just, to be frank, selfish. Mm -hmm. I also learned through my research that F.O. Stanley even had something to do with bringing about the National Park as well. Really? He's basically Superman. (laughs) He's just super philanthropic and gives the town a ton of land to build a school and a park and a dump and all sorts of things. He also brought automobiles to this town, which benefited both himself and the town. Estes Park never had a railroad. And in this time, that was the primary means of transportation. So he built this bus system, as he called it, uh, for the town, which really helped. Like I said Not only the people in the town, but the hotel itself, since you can't have tourism without a good way to get into this town from farther away. So basically, as opposed to the first guy who bought all the land, Wyndham, Stanley not only bought the land, but he improved the town around it and including making it more accessible to the outside world. That's kind of awesome. Exactly. He's kind of my new hero at the moment. So don't be surprised when you're over next. And I have a picture of this man on my wall that I had like framed and blown up at Kinko's or something. (laughs) Now, we've all seen pictures of this hotel and we all know how crazy gorgeous it is. And if you guys out there haven't seen it, you need to Google it because it's massive and beautiful. Nicole, you know what it looks like, right? I do. So... Being from Maine, just like Stephen King, who uses hotel as the inspiration for The Shining, Stanley tried to model the hotel after other luxury hotels like the ones found in New England, and specifically, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful places ever, Newport, Rhode Island. And now I want to tell you my favorite part, because it's crazy. So I told you he made a travel system for the town so people could visit, right? Mm-hmm. Well... People would be driving through with their driver to get to the Stanley Hotel in one of those Stanley steamers, Mm -hmm. and they'd see some native wildlife in the form of a bear, and some of these people had never seen bears before. The bear would stand up tall and rush at the Stanley steam car, which, although these cars may have broken the land speed record at the time, probably still weren't fast enough to, you know, outrun a bear. Uh, So the driver of the car would say, oh, don't worry, this happens all the time. And he would pull out his gun and shoot the bear. Oh, my God. However, this wasn't actually even a fucking bear. It was a man in a bear suit shot with blanks. And the only people that knew about this were F.O. Stanley and his wife, Flora, the driver and the bear. That's amazing. (laughs) Yes. Give people that full Colorado experience. I'm telling you, man, Colorado is crazy of whimsical, delightful weirdos. I love it. And it kind of reminds me of Mammoth Cave and the weirdness that happened with Mammoth Cave. Mm-hmm. So Stanley ended up never making a lot of money from the hotel, unfortunately. And he ended up selling the place in the 1920s to Roe Emery. 
Emery knew more about hotels and tourism, but still, try as he might, the hotel just needed so much upkeep because this thing is massive. Yeah. That he and the subsequent owners just couldn't handle it all, and the hotel began to fall into disrepair. It wasn't actually until Stephen King came there in 1974 that its fortunes changed for the better. King was actually a struggling author at the time, and he was currently living in Boulder. So actually, that was quite a symbiotic relationship between the two. Because when he was there, the hotel was shutting down for the winter. It gave him the idea for The Shining, <laughs> which would become wildly popular and his first real bestseller. One thing from the movie that, as I've said before, I don't remember being in the book is the topiary. And the reason that it is most likely not in the book is because it did not exist at the hotel until well after the book and movie were made. Interesting. A hedge maze was created in 2015 just to try to tie the hotel into the movie a little more. And as I have mentioned before, the hotel has their own channel, which plays The Shining on a loop. <laughs> so you can watch it anytime you want. Perfect. The Stanley Hotel's ghosts are nothing new for the town of Estes Park, and the whole area is known to be haunted, or at least spiritually connected in some way. Some people think that it's the energy from all the quartz crystal in the area, which is known as a good conductor of spiritual energy, and this place has that in spades. So we're going to start with room 217. It's super well known, and it's where most ghost hunters want to stay when they book a room here. Uh, it's where Stephen King did stay a night. And back in 1911, this room had a gas leak. And back then, gas didn't have a smell like it does today, so no one knew anything until it was too late. Oh. And there was an explosion from a maid lighting a gas lamp. She did not die, however, and she only broke her ankles, which, although not great, she was still alive. And once she recovered, she actually returned to work and worked there for the rest of her life. Wow, and, that's that's dedication. Yeah, and even her afterlife. She's still there. So she blew through a freaking floor, fell into the dining room, and she still loves this place. Wow. I was going to say, I'm like, how does one survive a gas leak? And there you go. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but in room 217, the lights turn on and off on their own. Bags are sometimes unpacked for you, so thanks, ghost lady, whose name is Mrs. Wilson, by the way. Thanks, Mrs. Wilson. Items also go missing, only to be found in a different place later by the guests, so she's just like, I think this goes better over here, don't you? Okay, great. <laughs> um, if you're an unmarried couple staying in the room, however, the couples have said that they feel a cold force separating them in bed. And sometimes when they wake the next morning, the man's belongings will all be packed and placed by the door. <laughs> ah, still holding on to her her post-Victorian values. I love it. Exactly. Yes, I love it. And she's just like, no, no, you're out. Go, go. Perfect. So other famous, tons of famous people have stayed here. Tons of like rich people have stayed here. Politicians, royalty, all sorts of people. And I do have a story about another celebrity. Okay. So Jim Carrey, among others, while working on the film Dumb and Dumber, got very spooked by this place. He, I don't know exactly what happened, but Jim was staying in room 217 and he ran out half-dressed in the middle of the night because he was so scared in this room. Weird. 
Yeah. There's this staircase attached to the lobby, which is known as the Vortex. And people report orbs here, a strange dizzying feeling, as well as the cold sensation of something passing through them when they're on these stairs. Oh, creepy. Yes. And Mrs. Wilson is not the only spirit that you might see here. You might also see Stanley's wife, Flora. So Flora had a room built for her, which is now the concert hall, which houses her piano. Flora was said to be very particular about this room in life, and she's kind of hanging around here in death as well, and she will still play that piano late at night. Huh. Yep, just ghostly fucking piano coming out of this room. That's like, that is straight out of a horror movie, right? Where it's like, what's oh, that yeah. beautiful sonata that I hear? Exactly. There's also the spirit of another employee in this room named Paul, who used to enforce curfew. And he's not shy in the least. And if you're here past 11, he'll very clearly tell you to get out. You will hear his voice say, get out. What? Yep. I don't, I don't, mm -mm. nope. People have heard him speak these words. And in 2000, when the room was being renovated, one of the workers said they kept feeling little nudges from someone they couldn't see until they left the room. Mm -mm. So it's good old Paul. And Paul will also communicate with tour groups. You can ask him to turn your flashlight on and off, and he will gladly do so. Wow. That's yep. kind of intriguing. Yeah, I'd love to take a damn tour here. The fourth floor, where I believe in the movie is where the twins were, if I'm not mistaken, but it's been a while since I've seen it. And I did tell you that story before that I heard on Jim Harold's campfire from a guest at the hotel involving those twins. Mm -hmm. um, so you can hear children running around, laughing, giggling, and playing, as my source said. And as you all know, we, we don't like child ghosts very much on this podcast because they're super creepy and probably close to the number one nope on our list of nopes here at Roadside Horror Show. But yes, child ghosts. Because why the fuck not? <laughs> so, the fourth floor was a huge attic at one time. Okay. And in the video that I watched for the history portion of my notes, the one worker said that she tells people to run all the way down to the end of the hallway and go, Red rum, red rum, red rum. <laughs> and also, just so everyone knows, autocorrect on Microsoft Word knows the word red rum for some reason. Don't know why, but it does. It did not autocorrect me. I got no ugly red line. It knew red rum. That's kind of scary. It is. So in room 428, the furniture will move around on its own and footsteps can be heard. Huh. I don't like moving furniture. No, because that... I get annoyed when my furniture moves, usually from just, you know. Human Your beings. wife not telling you? Yeah. <laughs> Human beings. I can, I would be really frustrated if there was like also ghostly shenanigans moving my furniture around. Exactly. Don't move my furniture unless I ask you to, please. And thank you. So there's the ghost of a cowboy in this room as well. And huh. he needs to seriously hear that time's up because he likes to kiss the female guests. Gross. No thanks. Yep. The hotel didn't always have a fridge. So they used a building they called the Ice House to keep the food cold. 
Okay. I've heard of ice houses before. Yeah. And this has since been turned into a little museum where they house the Stanley steamers that I told you about. If you take a picture in this room, don't be surprised if there's an extra person in it since there's a boy named Billy who likes to show up in the pictures. (gasps) Oh, photo ghosts are so extra. Yep. Uh, There is another unnamed ghost here, but I don't know who that is or what they do. But I do know it's another child because we just cannot have enough freaking child ghosts running around this damn hotel. Uh, Child ghosts and pervy ghosts, two of the big nopes. (laughs) Child ghosts and pervy ghosts always get me down. It's true. It's true. Worse than rainy days and Mondays. Exactly. So now you might like this next part, maybe. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if this next part inspired another Stephen King story or not. But there is a pet cemetery on the property, which I'd like to go to because I love animals, even of the ghostly sort. (laughs) Two pets buried here, uh, a golden retriever named Cassie and a white cat named Comanche. And you can spot both of these adorable afterlife friends around the hotel. Aww, cute names. Yeah, I like them. There's something super creepy here, and it's an underground cave system below the hotel. I don't even like the sound of that at all. The only way I like the sound of that is if you tell me that's where they store ice cream and beer. Nope. Ugh. I don't like it It's not a beer cave or an ice cream cave. Uh, It is part of the tour. Well, nothing really scary is down here. People believe that it may be what makes this place so haunted with all the quartz I mentioned earlier. There's also granite, but I don't really know anything about granite Uh. and spiritual energy. So there's that. Yeah, I feel like quartz is always the, the, the rock that people talk about, like harmonic. Exactly. And as as long as you're not, you know, um, what was the word they used? Not defacing. Dismembering? Dismembering Mutilating. 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 Yeah. There we go. As long as you're not mutilating the rock, you're fine. Uh, people have reported the smell of baked goods down here coming from nowhere. Huh. But they do attribute that to a pastry chef who once worked there. Uh. There's also another cat ghost down in the cave, which my source told me is not part of the pet cemetery. This cat is gray and has glowing bright green eyes. That sounds like something out of a Stephen King novel as well. Exactly. And there could be very well be more ghosts here that I than I've mentioned. And if you're interested in staying at this beautiful and extremely haunted hotel, I urge you to write in with your own stories of this place. So how about you, Nicole? Would you stay here? I think I would just um, because it seems one beautiful and two so tied into not just, you know, literary and cinema history, but also the history of Colorado that I think would be a cool little place to stay. Plus, plus, I don't feel like we come across a lot of pet ghosts in our in our travels. So I'm into that. We really don't, especially dogs. Yeah. Like ghost cats are way more common than ghost dogs because dogs are very much people centric and cats are like place centric so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's easier for a cat to stay than a dog i think um but yeah i would definitely love to go here i think it sounds really cool not too many super scary things which is good nothing that's gonna hurt me at least so yeah. i'm down my sources uh were wikipedia stanleyhotel.com pbs.org for a video on the hotel which was very informative and entertaining nightlyspirits.com, travelchannel.com, and ninenews.com. And I do want to add one more thing. 
Uh, if you do stay at this hotel, you will want to check the weather. Because if you try to go up there in winter, you can very easily get snowed in. Sometimes there's not a way to get to the hotel because of how much snow they get up there. So just be careful. Fair enough. Fair warning. And because I didn't give my sources earlier, I'll go through that right now. Oh, yeah, you didn't. Uh, the sources for my story about the Denver Spider-Man include Wikipedia, Atlas Obscura, FlyDenver.com, TheDownload.com, PrisonMuseum.org, and History.DenverLibrary.org. Thank you very much for your sources too, Nicole. You're welcome. Well, I guess that wraps up Denver Part 2, which is exciting. You mean then- Colorado Part 2? Oh, shoot. It's all about Denver for me. Sorry. I guess it is. You're very Denver centric. (laughs) So I guess that wraps up Colorado part two. If you have any suggestions on some fun stories you'd like us to cover on the remainder of our road trip, please give us a shout out. You can do that a number of different ways. You can send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Uh, we're on f- Facebook and Instagram as Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter as Roadside Horror. We'd like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and Emassey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters. Creep, creep on, on, creeping, creeping on. on.